Calvary Chapel Elizabeth City's online sermon series. Join us this week for Daniel chapter 4, verses 28 through 37 with Pastor John King. Oh, good morning, everybody. Here we are in the final section of chapter 4 in Daniel. We're going to finish up with uh, verses 28 through 37. And then we'll be on to that strange handwriting on the wall sometime next week or the next couple weeks in chapter 5. Now last week we heard how the king describes Daniel's interpretation. Remember this, this chapter was written by a Gentile. Uh, and he describes Daniel's interpretation of the second dream. And then reality, you know, we notice reality is starting to sink in. He's heard it many times now. At least we have. Hopefully reality is sinking in for us. The king could either take Daniel's advice and change his ways, or God would humble the great monarch through what will be a very bizarre seven-year trial. This week, what was once a prophecy, what was once a foretelling of things to come, will become a reality. God's patience had finally run its course, and he was going to act swiftly. And that's how God is. God is long-suffering and patient, but when he moves, he moves quickly. Eight years of King Nebuchadnezzar's life are, are summarized. Twelve months of a time to reflect on who he was before the Most High, who he was under God, and repent of his pride of life. That was his big thing, the pride of life. He was the most powerful man in the world, in the, in the known world at that time. Now, as it turns out, he would have to suffer seven years of a very humbling experience until he finally lifted his eyes to heaven. He's going to lift his eyes to heaven and repent of his, his ways, if you will, and get right with the Lord. And when we read his final testimony, we're going to see that it's very inspiring. It's very hopeful for anyone who lives, anyone who breathes under God's kingdom, under God's glory, under who God is, God the creator. So uh, let's look at our verse, our passages. It's chapter uh, 4, verses 28 through 37. It says, All this came upon the king, Nebuchadnezzar. At the end of the 12 months, he was walking about the royal palace of Babylon, and the king spoke, uh-oh, saying, Is not this great Babylon that I have built for a royal dwelling by my majesty, or my, excuse me, by my mighty power, and for the honor of my majesty? Now while the word was still in the king's mouth, mouth, a voice from heaven fell. King Nebuchadnezzar, to you it is spoken. The kingdom has departed from you. And they shall drive you from men, and your dwelling shall be with the beast of the field. They shall make you eat grass like oxen, and seven times shall pass over you, until you know that the Most High rules in the kingdom of men and gives it to whomever he chooses. That very hour the word was fulfilled concerning Nebuchadnezzar. He was driven from men, and he ate grass like oxen. His body was wet with the dew of heaven till his hair had grown like eagle's feathers, and his nails like bird's claws. Verse 34. And at the end of time, at the end of the time, I should say, I, Nebuchadnezzar, lifted my eyes to heaven, and my understanding returned to me. And I blessed the Most High, and praised and honored him who lives forever. For his dominion is an everlasting dominion, and his kingdom is from generation to generation. 
All the inhabitants of the earth are reputed as nothing. He does according to his will in the army of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth. No one can restrain his hand or say to him, what have you done? At the same time, my reason returned to me, and for the glory of my kingdom, my honor and splendor returned to me. My counselors and nobles resorted to me. I was restored to my kingdom, and excellent majesty was added to me. Now I, Nebuchadnezzar, praise and extol and honor the King of heaven, all of whose works are truth, his ways are justice, and those who walk in pride he is able to put down. The word of the Lord. Heavenly Father, we must take a breath. We must take a pause here and consider that your word exclaims over and over again the greatness of who you are. The greatness and the majesty of who you are. And as your children, Lord, we can be secure in that. Despite what the world says, despite what the enemy tries to bring before us and by way of temptation, despite what the world wants to bring by way of lies and untruth and systems of man, Lord, we can sit securely under you because you are truly sovereign over all things. And so, Lord, we want to give that honor to you. We want to be able to say with Nebuchadnezzar in this case, yes, he does humble the proud. But we also want to be able to say that he gives grace to the humble. And so, Lord, go before us now. Go before us as we conclude this part of the book of Daniel tonight. This, excuse me, this, this morning. And go before us, Lord. We pray all these things now in Jesus' name and all God's people said. Amen. Lost track of time there momentarily. Sorry. Here we have uh, what we would call an understatement. These are fateful words. You know, we, this is a lesson up front. We already know that the things that we say, the things that go out there cannot be taken back. We're learning that. And it says in verse 28, all this came upon Nebuchadnezzar. Well, all this means all of the things that we've been talking about throughout this entire chapter. Nebuchadnezzar, history would record, he was a Babylonian king who destroyed Jerusalem and carried Judah into captivity. And he did this as an instrument of God. God allowed it to happen. But the problem was that he came to be so prideful of the kingdom and the, and the, the power that he had that it led to his downfall. When it says come upon, it means to reach or to extend to. Or in the NIV, this just happened, in other words. All this just happened. And then King Nebuchadnezzar, it's interesting. When you look at his name, it's translated Nebo or Nabu, protect the crown. And this is a, a Babylonian god. It was a major god in the Assyrio-Babylonian pantheon of gods. One writer puts it. Nabu or Nebu was the patron of the art of writing and a god of vegetation. You know, they make gods out of everything. Nabu's symbols were the clay tablet and the stylus. The instruments held to be proper to him who inscribed, get this, the fates of assigned to men. In other words, the fate of a man has been assigned to this god. And here this guy's fate, Nebuchadnezzar's fate is being has been determined by the Most High God. And he's declaring what's going to happen. Yet in his name, 
His name is a testimony to this false god who ascribes the fates assigned to men. In later years, God will use uh, the Assyrian king Cyrus to free the remnant of the Jews from Babylon. And through the prophet Isaiah, he declares the burden of false gods that have afflicted the great kingdom of Babylon. They became weighed down by these false gods. Isaiah 46.1. Speaking of those false gods, it says, Bel bows down. Nebo stoops. Their idols were on the beasts of the cattle, and your carriages were heavily loaded, a burden of the weary beast. You know, the only thing that these false gods can do ultimately is weigh you down in sin and unbelief and separate you from God. In verse 29, we see at the end of the 12 months, so there's a full year after Daniel had explained the dream. Now, did he take Daniel's advice to break off his sins by being righteous? Well, maybe for a while. We don't know. As we said earlier, God's patience is divine. It's divine patience. God is slow to anger, Exodus 34, 6. And so here he was at the end of the 12 months, and he was walking about the royal palace of Babylon. Something's about to happen. Now we've seen this sort of delay in punishment, because as we've been going through chapter 4, we know that these things are going to happen. And, and, and we were, last week we saw that there was a choice, though. There was some individual a free will, if you, if you would, that Nebuchadnezzar could break off his sins and repent and get right with God, and he would not perhaps have to go through what he's about to go through. But it's sort of a delay in punishment. You know, sometimes we, we look at God and we think his punishment needs to be swift and now. Well, be careful if we were ever to say that and think about how gracious he's been and how he's delayed things that we deserve to have happen to us while he patiently restored us. We've seen it before in the Bible. Remember King Israel's king, King Ahab, was confronted by the prophet Elijah for allowing his wife Jezebel to stir up him to practice idol worship with the Amorites. When God gave the land, you know, here they were at this point in Israel and they turned from God and now they're worshiping these idols. And so Elijah had declared God's judgment and punishment on both Ahaz and his wife. And, you know, he said uh, briefly, he said, I'll take away your posterity to Ahaz. And I'll cut you off from other, every male and both bond and free. But remember what he said to his wife, Jezebel. He said, concerning Jezebel, the Lord also spoke saying, the dogs shall eat Jezebel by the wall of Jezreel. And we know that that's ended up what happening. But Ahab was given a delayed sentence. And so when he heard what Isaiah had told him, he, or excuse me, Elijah had told him, he said in 1 Kings 21, 27, he said, so it was when Ahab heard these words that he tore his clothes and put sackcloth on his body and fasted and lay in sackcloth and went about mourning. And the word of the Lord came to Elijah the Tishbite saying, see how Ahab has humbled himself before me? Because he has humbled himself before me, I will not bring the calamity in his days. In the days of his son, I will bring the calamity on his house. A delayed punishment. But he would allow this uh, king to continue on. You see, not everything has been predetermined, has it? 
We can paint ourselves into a corner with that when we see that God reserves the right to change and alter things. So in verse 30, back to our text today, the king spoke. He shouldn't have said these things. <laughs> he couldn't take them back. But he said, is not this great Babylon that I have built? Now, the king spoke. You know, this would have been danger. You know, if Daniel had have been present, you might think that he would have probably said, now, king, I want you to think about what you're getting ready to say. You know, sometimes when you're ta talking to your kids and you're counseling with your kids, and you know they're about to say something that's going to get them into deeper trouble. Sometimes as parents, because we've had it said to us, right? Now, dear son, daughter, whoever you are, I want you to think very carefully about what you're getting ready to say to me. And unfortunately, the king did not do that. He says, is not this great Babylon that I have built for a royal dwelling? Now, where is the king at this moment? He's, he's in a dangerous place because he's up on a rooftop, okay? Rooftops are dangerous places for Old Testament people, isn't it? He was likely in a position to look at this marvelous city that he had a great major play and he was a major uh, instrument in getting it built to one of the most magnificent ancient cities of all time. And he could see the great city beyond the walls of his palace. We're reminded of, of course, King David looking out from the roof of his palace. Remember that? 2 Samuel 11:2. Then it happened one evening that David arose from his bed and walked on the roof of the king's house. And from the roof, he saw a woman bathing, and the woman was very beautiful to behold. And we know from there on out, he made some bad decisions, very bad decisions. He says, is this not great Babylon? Now, the word Babylon, it's, it's confusing for us, uh, because what it does mean is, is confusion. So isn't this one big, giant, confusing city that I built? I mean, you know, a mixed, you know, I, I, I'm sure I'm taking that out of context. Forgive me. It says that I have built, though, that's the point. First person singular. He was famous for his buildings, for a royal dwelling, or for the house of the kingdom, if you have a King James version. But then he goes on, he says, by my mighty power. You know, the things that we ascribe to God, that he ascribed to God at the end, mighty power, that means strength, mighty strength. For my honor, that's glory. So power and glory of my majesty to be glorified. He was living like God never spoke the prior words of judgment. And that's the biggest, one of the biggest mistakes that a believer can make, or an unbeliever for that matter, anyone under God's dominion, in which we all are, is to try to live your life as though God never said the things that he said. That he wasn't, in, you know, he didn't exist, he didn't, he didn't even matter. We live our lives so focused on us and, and the things of, of our world and the things that we want that we try to live our lives without recognizing who gave us the breath to live those lives. And Jeremiah 51, 37, you know, it was prophesied, Babylon shall become a heap, a dwelling place for jackals, an astonishment and a hissing without an inhabitant. 
And, you know, we know in modern times that it's an archaeological site, but it's not any place special, though it has been built up, this area where we think ancient Babylon might have been, over in Iraq. But for century upon century upon century, it was just rubble, a bunch of bricks. Most of the bricks, by the way, we'll mention it later, had this man Nebuchadnezzar's name inscribed on it. Proverbs 16, 18, we know it. Pride goes where? Before destruction. And a haughty spirit before a fall. Uh, the great Sir Henry Rawlinson. Sir Henry Rawlinson was a giant among archaeologists in the 1800s. And he said this. He said, modern research has shown us that Nebuchadnezzar was the greatest monarch that Babylon, or perhaps the East, generally ever produced. He must have possessed an enormous command of human labor because nine-tenths of Babylon itself and nineteen-twentieths of the other ruins that in almost countless profusion cover the land are composed of bricks stamped with his name. He appears to have built or restored almost every city and temple in the whole country. His inscriptions give an elaborate account of the immense works which he constructed in and about Babylon itself, abundantly illustrating the boast, is not this great Babylon which I have built. So, you know, if you could give him credit for having um, a, a, a leg to stand on for his hand in building and being a great builder, you could give him that. But the problem was, of course, was his pride, his pride. We know that man, mankind, is very capable of high levels of achievement and conquest. We, we have seen amazing things in our lifetimes. I'm, I could go on, we could, we could go on and on about going to the moon, you know, the digital age, the things that we're doing now, what, what we see now with the telescope that we've never seen, what we see with the microscope that continues to prove who God is and how complex and how perfect and how marvelous are his works. So we've seen, and we're capable of high levels of achievement, but we've got to ask our question, to what end? Is it just to have more knowledge? Ecclesiastes, we read it this morning. One verse from Ecclesiastes 2.21. For there is a man whose labor is with wisdom, knowledge, and skill, yet he must leave his heritage to a man who has not labored for it. This also is vanity, and it's also a great evil. You know, all the works of men, all the, all the works of great works of Nebuchadnezzar ended up to be a pile of rubble. So when you consider the massive advances in human knowledge over the past 250 years, where does that bring us? It doesn't change certain basic things, does it? Psalm 49, 12, Nevertheless, man though in honor, does not remain. He is like the beasts that perish. And so we think about these principles that we're learning about punishment being delayed. But punishment being sure when the Lord says what he says. Psalm 10, 11, don't fool ourselves and be like this man who has said in his heart, God has forgotten, he hides his face, he will never see. 
So here we've seen this great monarch, and we talked about his temptation and what, he, what led him to do. We talked about David. We talked about Ahab, King Ahab. And one commentator writes this, concerning temptation. We always need to remember this. The eye is the avenue through which many of the temptations of the world rush upon the soul. The tempter tried thus to overcome Jesus by a panoramic view of the glory of the world kingdoms, but in vain. You see, the same thing had gotten men, the devil tried to use, Satan tried to use on Jesus himself. He took him to this high place and said, I'll give you all the kingdoms of the world. And you know, Jesus didn't deny that, that, that Satan was, had the prince of the power of the air. He didn't deny the fact that he had for this time until he defeated him on the cross. He defeated Satan forever, and ultimately he will be defeated. But he didn't question the fact of who did rule the world at the time. And of course, he, he tried, but Jesus would not sin, would not fall. So now we hear a voice from heaven. We see in verse 31, it says, While the word was still in the king's mouth, bang, you know, just get just as it rolls off his lips, a voice fell from heaven. Certainly, there was no doubt that his mind made a very quick connection between the faithful words and God's punishment. It's all coming together, right? I mean, my life is now flashed before my eyes, as you've heard that said. And of course, King Nebuchadnezzar, to you it is spoken, the kingdom has departed from you. He would lose his royal authority when? Now. Right now. The kingdom has departed. You know, God, he continually, we, we need to learn this. We need to learn that God will not share his glory with men, not this side of heaven. We are his servants. And so pride puffs us up. Many biblical examples. Acts 12, 21, Herod, look what happened to him. It says, Acts 12, 21, so on a set day, Herod arrayed in royal apparel. He was going to go before a great assembly up in Tyre. And he sat on his throne and he gave an oration to them, you know, some grand speech. And the people kept shouting the voice of a God and not of man. Then immediately, an angel of the Lord struck him because he did not give glory to God. And of course, he was eaten by worms and died right then and there. That was quick. Think of Ananias and Sapphira when they lied, when they lied about what they did. They both fell dead right there in front of Peter, the apostle. Verse 32, And they shall drive you from men, and your dwelling shall be with the beasts of the field. Look, God is making it perfectly clear right now. He is the Lord of all, over all. They shall make you eat grass like oxen, like a cow. How many stomachs does a cow have? Five? How many? Two. Two. Okay, thank you. You shall eat grass like oxen, and seven times shall pass over you. He would, he would become insane, totally insane, and he would live outside among the animals. So now he's actually hearing the same words from his dream. It wasn't lost on him, not, a, not in the least bit, I would think, until he lost his mind. 
and the time set until you know that the Most High rules in the kingdom of men and gives it to whomever he chooses. There's a lot there. God is, again, we've said it over and over. God isn't just, he didn't just set the earth in motion and then cross his arms and said, let's see what's going to happen. This is going to be fun. Angels, let's watch. See, we'll see watchmen destroy themselves. No, God is active and he rules in the kingdom of men, the United States of America, Israel, Europe, China, Russia, everywhere. He rules in the kingdom of men and he gives it to whomever what? We choose? That's our, that's our problem we talked about last week. We have this free society that allows us to vote. <laughs> we participate. We, it's, a, it's a great freedom. No, I'm not knocking it. But somehow God's sovereignty sits above all that. And so whomever he chooses. So until he surrenders his pride for true humility and, and agrees with God, what does that sound like? That ought to sound like what you and I had to do in order to surrender our life to Jesus Christ, is we needed to surrender our pride. We needed to come before the Lord and agree with God that we were sinners and that we were destined for hell. And if we don't agree with God that he has an offer for us, he has a way for us not to have to suffer and die and go to hell. If we don't agree with God and acknowledge him as sovereign over all men, then we will stay in a state of unbelief. That very hour, the word was fulfilled concerning Nebuchadnezzar. He was driven from men and he ate grass like oxen. As we've said, when the Lord moves quickly and decisively. And again, his body was wet with the dew of heaven till his hair had grown like eagle's feathers <laughs> and his nails like birds. It all came to completion. <clears throat> this is a, a always, I think, been an interesting passage. I don't care when you, when you read it, when you first encounter it, and as you study this passage. And of course, you notice that when you read some of what the commentators say, especially the older ones, they had a habit of, of taking this form of madness and attaching it to what's called lycanthropy which is sort of a, a werewolf kind of thing, okay? It's where a man becomes an animal or a wolf. And that's how you, I, it's got to contribute to how that whole thing is perpetuated through, through time. But uh, more modern, uh, you know, doctors, uh, David Guzik makes note, he says, the form of insanity, because you always want to go, what, what kind of craziness did he have? You know, there's got to be a name for that, right? And anybody that's... Uh, looked at psychology and sociology, you'll realize they have a name for everything. And the form of insanity in which men think of themselves as animals and imitate the behavior of an animal has been observed, clinically been observed. Some call it insania zoanthropica. You know, another big name. Great. More specifically in Nebuchadnezzar's case, bianthropy. Bianthropy the delusion that one is an ox. Now, I haven't met anybody that had that, uh, but I, I'm going to trust that they have had, and I'm, I don't want to make fun of mental health issues because they're very, very serious. John Walvoord quotes this Dr. Raymond Harrison of Britain, who in 1946 actually had a patient suffering from boanthropy, called boanthropy, just as Nebuchadnezzar had suffered. So a little side note on that. But, you know, as we, as we look at this, you know, what kind of thoughts 
might exhort us or invite us to seek God's wisdom or counsel uh, with what we've read so far. I think the fact is the, that we just need to realize that we're not promised tomorrow. Luke 12, 19 and 20, we'll let the Lord speak. He says uh, of a man who says, and I will say to my soul, soul, you have many goods laid up for many years. Take your ease, eat, drink, and be merry. But God said to him, fool, this night your soul will be required of you. When those will, the, or excuse me, when whose will those things be which you have provided? In other words, all the stuff that you've laid up in treasures is not going to help you when you stand before judgment. So if you think about it, this King Nebuchadnezzar was, was more fortunate than most people because he was given an actual time of his testing and uh, promised to be restored. Promised to be restored. But if you're walking in life, and whoever may hear this, if you're walking apart from God, you don't know Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, are you promised tomorrow? We, we see, you know, you read, the, unfortunately, we read the, the accounts, the, the, uh, the obituaries, the death notices. You can read them each and every day. It's been said that, you know, I think up to 160,000 people die every hour in the world today. So we come here to his final testimony. This is, you know, even though Nebuchadnezzar is mentioned many times in the Bible, this is his final testimony. Verses 34 through 37. It says, notice his personal response, that his understanding has returned. It says, and at the end of the time, I, Nebuchadnezzar, lifted my eyes to heaven and my understanding returned to me. Seven years of madness is determined by God. Now he's lifted his eyes. See, God gave him the opportunity to surrender his will and humble himself. And that is the message that we have for every person. Okay, every person on the face of the earth, I don't care who they are, uh, if they're in the age of accountability and they have the ability to understand, every person needs to hear that message. That we, uh, you know, surrender your will and humble yourself before God. And so look what happens. His personal response, his understanding returned. It says, and my understanding returned to me. In other words, I wasn't crazy anymore. I didn't think I was an ox anymore. I went to the barber. <laughs> I had a, maybe I had a manicure. I don't know. I think he would have been ready for one. They probably have to cut those nails with some kind of special clipper. Anyway. Uh, but Nebuchadnezzar could only see the truth about himself, writes David Guzik, when he first saw the truth about God. You know, as truth comes to dawn in our hearts and our minds... We need to understand who God is so that we can understand who we are. The Babylonian king did see who God was, and he eloquently praised his sovereignty. So after this, his reason returned. And he says, And then I blessed the Most High and praised and honored him who lives forever. I blessed the Most High means to, to kneel, to prostrate. And I praised and honored to adore and to glorify him who lives forever, who lives in perpetuity indefinitely. That's, that's our, that should be our approach, at least in our hearts, okay? Um, you know, in the ancient world, it's been known that they would actually 
bow from a distance as they were approaching someone. They would lay themselves flat from a distance and make, slowly make their passage before somebody. But in our hearts, where are we? Do we adore him? Do we glorify him? Do we take the time to enjoy our time with him? I can't tell you the setting that's most appropriate. But I do know that that's what he wants. It's a relationship. And notice his personal response led to God's attributes. He says, for he recognized that true sovereignty and power really is from a man who was the most powerful man on the face of the earth. For he says about God, his dominion is an everlasting dominion and his kingdom is from generation to generation, from age to age until he returns. And then it's for all of eternity. All the inhabitants of the earth are reputing, reputed as nothing. Keep in mind, this is not that God doesn't like people, okay? Don't let some atheist try to take a passage like that and tell you that God's mean. But in comparison to God's sovereignty and power, we are indeed nothing. He created Adam from the dust of the earth and he breathed life into him. Yes, indeed, we are nothing. Yet in the eyes of God, we're also made in his image and he extends redemption to all through Christ. No other God does that. No other God could do that because there is no other God. He does according to the will in the army of heaven. Interesting. The army of heaven. You know, we talk about this, this heavenly host and there's, a, there's a, a lot being said and there's a lot being written about these, these unseen realms today, in today's world. And it's kind of a, a resurgence of that understanding, especially going through the Old Testament. And among the inhabitants of the earth. So we see God's in heaven, but he's also on the earth. He inhabits, he controls all of his creation. First heaven where he sits, second heaven in the stars, the, uh, excuse me, first heaven uh, where the skies are, second heaven where the stars are, and the third heaven where he sits. I had it backwards. All of that's his. And notice that no one can restrain his hand or say to him, what have you done? No one, you can't like block God. You, you can't like reach out and stop him from doing, you know, if, if, if he had a hand for you to do that to. But the word means to physically strike. No one can physically strike God. And say, what have you done? You cannot question God in a commanding tone. We got a lot of questions for God. We have a lot of questions for God. I hope you do. I know I do. But not in a commanding tone. Romans 9.20, Paul writes, But indeed, O man, who are you to reply against God? Will the thing formed say to him who formed it, Why have you made me like this? The answer is no. And so we see here in verse 36, Now God, what does he do? He restores Nebuchadnezzar's mind and his kingdom. See, God is a God of restoration. You know, whenever we've fallen away from God, whether we've fallen in sin, whether we've, been, we've given into temptation, God seeks restoration. And he wants to use his church to be instruments of that. We have to be very, very careful. And when we see somebody who's fallen in sin, to try and be judges over them. No, our desire is, should be what God's desire is, seeking restoration and, and saying the truth when it needs to be said. 
with love. He says, at the same time, my reason returned to me for the glory of my kingdom, my honor and splendor returned to me. All the things that he was prideful of, that he had, that had control of him, God now gave it back to him. Isn't that amazing? My reason returned to me, his knowledge and his understanding. Even my counselors and nobles resorted to me. I was restored to my kingdom and excellent majesty was added to me. In fact, NIV says he became even greater than before. Now this would have been probably near the end of his 40 some odd year reign. Maybe he had nine or 10 years left after this. But even though this king had achieved great heights on his own, after humbling himself before God, the first step in getting right with God, we need to remember, is humility. The first step. James 4.10 says what? Humble yourselves in the sight of the Lord, and what will he do? He will lift you up. Verse 37, now I, Nebuchadnezzar, praise and extol and honor the king of heaven. I adore, I lift up, I glorify. Who? The king of heaven. All of whose works are truth and his ways are justice. You know, the works and the ways of God are that. They're truth, they're justice, they're, they go beyond our words to describe. His works are truth, he's certain, it's certainty, what he says, he means. His ways are justice, his, look, in the end, his judgment is absolute. And those who walk in pride, he is able. You know, we say God is able. Well, you know what he is also able of? Being able to put you down. He's able to humble you. Proverbs 21.4, a haughty look, a proud heart, and the plowing of the wicked are sin. See, if you're walking in pride. Remember how this great ordeal that he went through started? He was walking about the royal palace. Is not this great Babylon that I have built for a royal dwelling by my mighty power and for the honor of my majesty? Not anymore. He has words to say, but it's not the same. This great king is willing to testify of his sin of pride before the entire world. Remember, this was a decree that was put out so all the world would hear and see in order to do what? To magnify and glorify God. How can we be of use? That should be our question. How can we be of use for the Lord, how can we be an instrument of his glory? How can we magnify him? What can we do, Lord, show us? Um, there is a little side note if you're into prophecy. There's a bit of, uh, of prophetic significance to this account. Since Babylon is used in the scriptures as a figure of the world system in general, we see that in the book of Revelation, especially in you know, the great Babylon. And David Guzik says this, Nebuchadnezzar's madness foreshadows the madness of Gentile nations in their rejection of God. And when you see a nation that goes apart from God, that wants to do their own thing, whatever it is, whatever political system that it is, you see that it becomes madness. It becomes, you know, crazy, genocide, uh, you know, just 
oppression, millions put in jails and gulags, you know, all these things. It becomes utter madness apart from God. And so perhaps Nebuchadnezzar's madness foreshadows the madness of what would come in these succeeding kingdoms of the world that, that history would record. Nebuchadnezzar's fall typifies Jesus' judgment of the nations. You know, he will come and he will rule with a, a, an iron scepter, with a rod of iron in the great millennium. Nations will come and bow down before Jesus, King Jesus. And Nebuchadnezzar's restoration foreshadows the restoring of some of these nations during the great millennial reign, the millennial kingdom. So those are interesting uh, thoughts on prophecy. But as we conclude today, what kind of thoughts that we can, can we come away with here uh, that may exhort us or again invite us to change, invite us to consider our ways before the Lord? You know, these were the last spoken words that we said in the Bible by Nebuchadnezzar. But his name occurs 91 times in 88 verses of the New King James. So this was the first of the great empires of man that would soon give way to another, the Assyrians, Medo-Persians. His final words were very telling of his faith. He says, now I, Nebuchadnezzar, praise and extol and honor the king of heaven. Again, glorifying, adoring, magnifying God. And so what is your testimony with God? If, if someone were to write your obituary, what would it say about your life and your relationship with God? But you know, more importantly than that, more importantly than the inscription that you might see on your tombstone, is the question for anybody who hears this, is will your name be found written in the Lamb's book of life or will it have been blotted out for rejecting God's gracious offer to pardon your sins by repenting and placing your faith in Jesus Christ? You see, that's what you want written. Everyone, I believe, the Bible is clear, Every person that's born has a name. It's written in the Lord's book of life, God's book of life. But when they reach the age of accountability, if they reject and they die in their sins and they reject God's offer, he blots their name out. Ecclesiastes 12, 13 and 14. Let us hear the conclusion of the whole matter. Fear God and keep his commandments, for this is man's all, for God will bring every work into judgment including every secret thing, whether good or evil. Now in Revelation, we read how that happens at the great white throne judgment. Look at first, uh, Revelation 20, verses 11 15, through 15. It says, Then I saw a great white throne, and him who sat on it, from whose face the earth and heaven had fled away. And there was found no place for them. These were people standing before God in judgment. And I saw the dead, small and great, standing before God, and the books were open. And another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged according to their works by the things which were written in the books. Ecclesiastes just said that everything you do, every secret thing, whether good or evil, is recorded. And so someday, uh, you don't want to be in that line. You don't want to be standing before God to be judged by your works. The sea gave up the dead who were in it. Death and Hades delivered up the dead. That's the grave who were in them. And they were judged each one according to his works. 
And then death and Hades were cast into the lake of fire. This is the second death. And anyone not found written in the book of life was cast into the lake of fire. Now as a believer, you can be sure that a humble, not not a perfect life, not a perfect life, a humble life lived in service to the Lord will result in sharing God's glory at the resurrection. You see, he has reserved that right to, to, to let us share in his glory at the resurrection. Look at Philippians 3.7. It says, But what things were gained to me, these I have counted lost for Christ. Yet indeed, I also count all things lost for the excellence of the knowledge of Christ Jesus my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things, and count them as rubbish, that I may gain Christ. And be found in him, not having my own righteousness, which is from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness which is from God by faith, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings, being conformed to his death, if by any means I may attain to the resurrection from the dead. So folks, as we close today's service, let's consider in our own hearts where we're at with God right now. It's, it's you know, if there was any, ever a place, church is going to be the place to ask God to search your heart because we've set aside this time. So as we bow our heads and as the worship team comes up, we're going to just go before the Lord now and ask, Father, that you would just search our hearts once again, Lord God. You know, maybe it's words that have been spoken that would require, you know, an apology to someone. Things that have been said that were spoken uh, out of anger or frustration. Maybe it's just uh, this tendency of our own that we, we, we start to become prideful in the things that we have. Maybe it's our position at work or our possessions or our achievements, or even our family, even our, even our children, we, we get prideful over the things, the good things that you've provided us. And we've forgotten that we're stewards of the things that you, you have given. And so, Lord, I just pray for each of us, for myself, that we would continue to humble our hearts before you, that we would learn how to walk in humility so that you would be the one to lift us up, you would be the one to reward us. Lord, we've seen this lesson, this great lesson from this great ancient monarch and how you dealt with him and how sovereign you are over all the affairs. And, and so, Lord, we can be in a secure place. We can see you as a strong tower or a place where we run to when things get difficult or even when we just want to bask in your presence Lord and that it may fight against what the world is constantly bombarding us with with the information that comes to us with the news with everything that's coming at us Lord we can find hope and protection in our life with you but if we won't do that if we won't humble our hearts before you then you will allow us to suffer you will allow us to walk through rough times 
but you're always reaching out to us. As long as we have breath, you want to give your breath of life into us. And so, Father, thank you for the lessons learned today. May they be useful so that we can be useful for you and the work that you have for us. We thank you, Lord, for your loving kindness. We praise you and we adore you, Lord. Go before us now. In Jesus' name, we pray and all God's people said. Let's stand and we'll read our doxology and then we'll have music. Romans 16, 25, 27. Now to him who is able to establish you according to my gospel and the preaching of Jesus Christ, according to the revelation of the mystery kept secret since the world began, but now made manifest and by the prophetic scriptures have made known to all nations according to the commandment of the everlasting God for obedience to faith. To God alone, wise, be glory through Jesus Christ forever. Amen. Amen. Thank you for joining us today for Calvary Chapel Elizabeth City's online sermon series. Join us next week as we continue through the Bible, book by book, verse by verse, line by line. God bless.